some years ago, a song came out that contained these words. There's a broken heart for every light on Broadway. Talking about those that wanted to be in Broadway plays and all that. And yet there are some that are broken hearts because they never get to do it. When every minister begins in the pastorate, he either hears or realizes something like this. Remember when people come together to worship, be sensitive to them and their needs because there's a broken heart in every pew. Most of us have experienced enough of the battles and burdens and heartaches of life to find ourselves at one time or another crying out, why, Lord, why did this happen to me? For what am I being punished? Those kind of those are kind of instinctive questions. In fact, we heard many of those same kind of questions on 9-11. Why did God let this happen? Why did God let so many thousands of good people die? Well, we see these questions and we've had these questions because we have learned to accept the fact that we reap what we sow or if we sow bad seed, we're going to reap bad harvest. We realize that if we sow seeds of sin, bitterness, hatred, carelessness, or disobedience, eventually they're going to come back on us and we'll reap that kind of a harvest. But what if we haven't sown those kinds of seed? What if we haven't done those things? What if tragedy still still seems to enter into our lives and we find ourselves bearing burdens that we don't understand and we don't think we deserve? In such moments, moments, we may ask ourselves questions like, why God? Why do bad things happen to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Are you really there? Does it do any good to pray? Do you care about me? God, do you see me? These and other questions arise as we come face to face with tragedy in our lives. Go to the religions of the East, and they will say that you are in a cycle of reincarnation. That all things happen that because of something you've done in a previous life, you're being punished in this new life. And you'll be punished in the next one for what you've done wrong in this one. It sounds like a real exciting religion, isn't it? But if you can find out which one of those thousands of gods you have angered, then maybe you'll be able to appease that God's wrath and lessen your punishment in the next reincarnation. The Muslim would give a different answer. Allah has willed it. And you must learn to accept his will without question. Some in our land might respond to tragedy by shaking their fist toward heaven and saying, God, if you allow such things to happen, then I reject you, I curse you, and I don't even ever want to have anything to do with you again. Why do good things happen to bad, or bad things happen to good people? Still others may espouse a theory as Rabbi Harold Kushner says in his book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He says that God is limited in his power and therefore he's not a participant in our lives. Instead, Rabbi Kushner says, God is a spectator watching us with interest. He says God wants to see good things happen to people to his people, but he's not always able to arrange it. Hmm. 
His conclusion is that God is not all powerful and we ought to understand that and love God anyway because God has his shortcomings and we should forgive God for his shortcomings. Now, that's an interesting twist, isn't it? Rabbi says that it's our turn now to forgive God for God's failures. Boy, I don't want to be near him during the electric storm. Obviously, I don't agree with either of the first three, but I also can't agree with, cannot agree with Rabbi Kushner's explanation why bad things happen to good th- people. I don't think the Bible agrees with that e- either. In the book of Revelation, the 15, verse 3 and 4, we see words from the Old Testament that are reaffirmed in the New Testament. It says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the Ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations are will come and worship before you, your, for your righteous acts have been established. So remember this. God is holy. God is mar- marvelous. God is just. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And I trust that you believe that too. And as we look at him, we begin to realize that we don't know it all. Surprise, surprise. And that we can't always tell what's good and what is best. For example, what would a good world to you look like? If you were going to create a perfect world, what would it be like? If you could give God a list of positives and negatives, things you want in the world and things you don't, what would be on the two lists? If, it'd be interesting to think about, wouldn't it? In fact, most of us would think a perfect world would be as if everybody did what I think was right. (laughs) Is that about right? No pain, no death, no sorrow, no handicapped children, no debts, a perfect temperature, never too hot, never too cold. 14-point buck on the first shot. Just saying... But after getting past these things, these first few things on which most of us could easily agree, there would probably come some areas of judgment. Saddam Hussein's perfect world would not have been our idea of a perfect world, nor would Fidel Castro's perfect world. We would not all agree on what is best. When Nancy and I decide to go out to eat, we very seldom come up with the same answer in time. In fact, when I ask her where she wants to go, she usually answers, I don't care. So in Greenville, I don't care is Lou Bob's restaurant. In Richland Center, I don't care is the family restaurant. Which is kind of, if she says, I don't care, okay, that's, we're going to family restaurant. So why is it that, can you imagine if two people, husband and wife, cannot agree and can't decide where to go to eat? Can you imagine what it'd be like if a group of eight or ten had to decide where they wanted to go? And what they wanted to do, what they thought would be best. 
And I had a friend, a Jewish friend in Oklahoma, who said that, you know what you get when you get two Jew or 10 Jewish men together? Well, the correct answer, if you put 10 Jewish men together, you're supposed to have a synagogue. Wherever there is 10 Jews, you have a synagogue. I said, I said that. He says, no, you said, if you get 10 Jewish men together, you have 11 opinions. Isn't that kind of the way it is with us? Now, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a perfect example of not knowing what's best. Beginning in Genesis chapter 37 and going all the way to the end of the book, we find the story of Joseph. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. That's bad. He finds himself in Egypt working as a slave. That's bad. He's falsely accused of attempting to rape his master's wife. <laughs> That's really bad. He's cast into prison, into prison, and that's even worse. Meanwhile, his father is grieving over his death as it was reported to him by Joseph's brothers. That's bad, and it's all bad. Why do bad things happen to good people? Until suddenly, Joseph finds himself second in command over the whole country of Egypt, dishing out grain to starving multitudes who have come to their land for something to eat. Listen to the words of Joseph years later as he speaks to his brothers, as we read in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God works together for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's an important point. If you and I don't really know what's best, who on earth does? If there really are values in the world, where did they come from? Where do we, how do we decide what's good and evil in this world? How do we decide what's right and wrong? Who tells us what is good and what's bad? If life is worth living, then who put value on life? And who decided that it's really worth living? If there really are answers, if there really are solutions, where do we go to find the answers and the solutions? <laughs> Isn't it great that we don't have to decide all those things? That there's a God who's already done it for us. As we heap all those questions together, we suddenly begin to realize that the crucial question is not why do bad things happen to good people? The crucial question really is, what is the purpose in my life? What is the purpose? Why am I here? Why do I get up every morning? Why do I go to work? Why do I pay my bills? Why do I care about my family? What is the purpose of my life? Who's deciding what my purpose is? You know, we live in a world, as I was walking around praying, and I was talking to Dave about this yesterday. By the way, let me, let me pause a minute. Here's a good thing to do, what I would encourage you to do. Pray walk on Saturday morning, and then come to church on Saturday at 3 o'clock, and we'll pray together for the people that you prayed with that day. Just thought. Anyway, so we were talking about this, and we th thought, you know, why... Who decides where we go? Who decides what we can do? If we can determine what our life is all about, if you can decide where you want to go and what's supposed to happen on the way, then you have a purpose and direction in your life. And when we think about this, those that we've been praying for in our community and those who've been walking by the houses, as we were talking yesterday, how many people in this day and age live their lives just going one day at a time 
going to work, coming home, going to work, coming home, going to work. And they really have no hope for any good life. If there's no hope for a good life, why are we doing it? What's the worth in it? What's the value in it? But on the other hand, if we, if we follow Christ, if we look at his, if we have purpose in God, we have the direction. You know, so many funerals that I've done for those who are not saved, um, and the families just have a hopeless life. This is the end. They're lying in that box. Soon they're going to be six feet under. That's the end. But for us, we have a hope and we have a purpose and we have a life. We have a future. But on the other hand, if we have no hope, life is meaningless. Surprisingly, there are many people in this world who live and act as if they have no purpose. Their life is simply an existence that will end in the not too distant future. An old Roman proverb says, when the pilot does not know for what port he is heading, no wind is the right wind. But if you know where you're going and you can catch the wind in your sails, then not even the storms can deter you. Now, if you were going to give me your goal, if you were going to list to me for your goal, your purpose for living in this morning, what would it be? Wealth? Fame? Privilege? Prestige? What would be your goal? What would be your purpose in this life? A prime example of someone who had it all or seemed to have it all of these things was the late Princess Diana. At first, here seemed to be like a storybook relationship, storybook marriage, living ever happily ever after. Huh? And the world celebrated their marriage. But she soon found out that she wasn't married to Prince Charming. That led to bouts with bulimia, attempted suicide, and affairs as their marriage crumbled around them. Her closest friends said that all she ever wanted out of life was to be happy. But despite the fact that she had beauty, fame, popularity, wealth beyond any imagination, happiness eluded her. She desperately sought it, but her life was not a happy one. And as you know, it ended tragically. So maybe we ought to ask, Again, what are my goals? What is the purpose of my life? Or more importantly, what goal or purpose does God have for my life? In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6 and 7, God speaks some of very important words. He says, he says, listen to the words. He says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. Bring them all to me. These are my children. God's calling us. This is the picture of God calling his family together. And if we're part of the family of God, our purpose in life, the reason he created us is to be able to glorify God, to reflect in his presence, and to be a representative of him in our lives. We were created to glorify God. And if you don't have that hope, you have nothing. God's purpose for me then is to glorify God in my life, realizing that 
what God is saying in scripture could change our attitudes in life. First of all, if God created us and we are his sons and daughters, part of his family called by his name, then our life is precious. It is a gift of God and we need to treasure it. We need to know that we're children of God and he created us in his image and he created us to reflect his image on others. We need to make sure that our lives, his temple is protected and to live as if we can bring God glory and only him. Secondly, if our purpose is to glorify God, then we need to be of service to others. Jesus told us that the greatest commandment of all is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Am I concerned about my neighbor? I hope so. Are you concerned about your neighbor? I certainly hope so. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.4 about the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Paul's saying, you have received comfort and strength from God. Now pass it on. Take what I've given you and pass it on to others. Comfort them. Stand beside them when they need you most. Learn to serve where you are needed. Help others find me. So as I make my journey to my final port along the way, God wants me to touch this person and that person for him. Maybe to dry some tears, maybe to give a sense of hope, maybe to help bind some broken pieces of somebody's life. Maybe in some way to speak the good word of the Lord. Maybe just to cry together and pray together. Maybe just to have a meal together and tell them that there's hope and there's future and there's fellowship. God's purpose for my life, you see, is to help someone else along the way. And I trust that that's your purpose as well. And then we know that scripture, that it is his purpose for us as well. Then finally this, and maybe this is probably the most important of all. We realize that we are living not by explanations, but by promises. I want to say that again. We realize that we are living not by explanations, but by promises. So why do bad things happen to good people? We don't have to live by explanations, but we can live by God's promise. For God works together, works all things together for good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can see that. We can trust him. We can know that. When our daughters were... When one of our daughters was in the hospital after her accident, she said to us, why did God let me live? I couldn't explain that. I didn't have an answer for that. But God does. I said, I don't know, Mallory, but apparently he knows and loves you and respects you enough that he has you here for a purpose. You'll find out what that is. You know, the word of God, to the best of my knowledge, never tries to explain the why of suffering, never tries to explain why people suffered, why the, the woman, the widow had lost her son, and then the prophet rose him, uh, raised him from the dead. Never tries to explain away why these things are. You can read all about the thorn in the flesh that Paul complained about, and we don't even know what it was, and we don't understand why. 
All we hear is what Paul said as a promise for God. My grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is going to help us through all of it. Doesn't matter what we're going through. God's promises are always there to help us overcome, not to become victims, but victors, to become, not to become slaves of our suffering, but become masters over them. Max Lucado, I don't know if you've read Max Lucado's books, but in his book entitled The Applause of Heaven, tells about a young man named Robert Reed who has cerebral palsy. This is what Lucado wrote. He can't brush his teeth or comb his hair or bathe himself. He can't dress himself or button his shirt. He has to depend on other people to do that for him. He can't even take a walk. He can't go from one place to another by his own power. But his handicaps did not rob Robert Reed from graduating from high school and from finally earning a degree from Abilene Christian College. Lucado writes that Robert Reed decided that he would study to be a missionary. So he taught a couple years in a junior college in St. Louis, and then he took five trips to different missionary fields. He finally settled in Lisbon, Portugal. Robert Reed found a hotel owner who would rent him a ground floor apartment. He found a restaurant owner who would feed him after hours every day. He found a tutor who would come and teach him the language. And every day he wheeled out to the city park and passed out Christian literature to people who walked by. He spoke to them in his voice that sounded like a record player whose batteries were about run down. He told them about the love of God through Jesus Christ. And in his six years, Robert Reed won more than 70 people to Jesus one of them was a young girl by the name of Rosa. And Rosa later became his wife. Lucado said, I sat in an audience of thousands and watched as strong men grabbed Robert's wheelchair with him sitting in it and lifted him up to the platform so he could speak to the vast audience of people. I watched him as he took his stiff fingers and tried to turn the pages of his Bible. And along with thousands of others, I wiped away tears of admiration. Here's one who could have complained. Here's one who could have been bitter. Here's one who could have asked, why me? Here's one who could have asked, why do bad things happen? To God's people, but instead, Robert Reed read in his drawn out way the words of God and gave his testimony. And when he gave, came to the end of it, he lifted his bent hand and finger and pointed up to God and said, I have everything I need. Locato adds, his shirts are held together with Velcro. But his life and love is held together with the joy of God. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. But we have a choice. We can lie down in the muck and mire of our pain and suffering and sorrow and feel all kinds of pity for ourselves and wants everybody else to feel pity for us. Or we can get up and we can walk tall and straight and claim the glory of God by the way we live and the way we overcome the obstacles in our pathway. 
We can know that God has a plan for us, and that's all we need to know. And when God says, I want you to leave and go to a place, I will go send you. We need to trust and walk. Question is, are you going to live your life as a question mark? (laughs) Or will you live your life as a bold declaration? I was created for good works. To glorify God in all things. And with God's power. Come what may. I will bless the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stories we see in Scripture, even the story of Joseph and and his brothers and what they did to him. And yet, even in all of this, in his time of imprisonment, in his time of accusation against him, in his time of being sold as a slave, in his time of being ridiculed by his brothers and cast out, he simply trusted in you. What his brothers intended for harm, you intended for good. Father, we know that in all things, you work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that's who we want to be in Jesus' name. Amen.